Hi, I'm David Freudberg. Each week at the Humankind on Public Radio podcast, we strive to practice the simple art of listening. At times, it can feel like a lost art in our noisy world. And of course, not everything is worth listening to. But for me, when I'm able to get centered, listening can be almost a sacred experience, a moment of focused attention that accords the speaker a measure of dignity. If you value this too, please help others to find our podcast. Consider going to Humankind on Public Radio at iTunes and leave us a kind review. And thanks for listening. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston. This special project, the Diet Climate Connection, is funded by the Henry P. Kendall Foundation, the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, the Lintelac Foundation, and a special grant from the Henry Luce Foundation. My grandparents were farmers. And for most people in the United States, their great-grandparents or their great-great-grandparents were farmers. So a basic part of figuring out how to be a sustainable community is to re-initiate that contact with the land. The rapidly growing movement of urban farming. You're listening to the Diet Climate Connection, a special project from humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Sometimes under freeways, sometimes at school and community gardens, people young and old are beginning again to grow their own food. The trend is increasing because locally grown tastes fresher, is cheaper than store-bought, and is more climate-friendly. During World Wars I and II, backyard fruit and vegetable gardening relieved pressure on the national food supply. In 1943, Eleanor Roosevelt planted a victory garden at the White House, a tradition that was revived by Michelle Obama in 2009. The planting of this garden was one of the first things that I wanted to do as First Lady here at the White House. The garden is just breathtaking right now. It's full of, we have broccoli and um, we just got in some beans which are coming up. We have red onions which are doing great. The radishes are about to get harvested. Sam Cass is a chef and former University of Chicago history major who was hired in 2009 to prepare dinners for the first family. He also selects crops and helps supervise the White House garden at the back edge of the South Lawn, visible from outside the gate. He met me there on a cloudy late spring morning. This garden is beautiful. Uh, the garden is full and lush and really, really green, so our peas are absolutely going just gangbusters and we have all kinds of peas. We have yellow snow peas and purple snow peas this year which is a first. We have lots of lettuces of all kinds. We have brown spotted lettuce. We have red and, and green curly lettuce um, and a brown Dutch lettuce from Thomas Jefferson. Uh, from Thomas Jefferson? So we have seeds from Thomas Jefferson's Monticello who he, that he actually used to plant and grow and eat, eat himself and that have been passed down from generation to generation. Uh, and it's been just a great experience to grow these seeds that are, you know, are, are so old. But and you know what? They always do the best. Uh, almost always. Uh, you know, last year was a rough year for tomatoes, but the Thomas Jefferson tomatoes did great. 
The White House Vegetable Garden is a 1,500-square-foot plot in a sunny corner of the South Grounds. Vegetables and herbs grow in more than 30 raised beds in wooden boxes, most measuring 3 by 12 feet. The garden even boasts the first-ever White House beehive to help with plant pollination. Local school children exuberantly pitch in with planting and tending to the garden. Mrs. Obama calls it a learning garden in her book, American Grown. Sam Cass. The First Lady, you know, back in Chicago, uh, knew that she wanted to uh, address some of the issues of, of health and wellness, particularly as they pertain to young people. And this came from her experience as a mom and, and grappling with, you know, the struggles of, even for her, the challenges of making sure her kids were growing up healthy and, and running into some trouble. And so um, she knew that the, maybe the most powerful symbolic way she could start this conversation, take the first step, would be to, to plant a garden on the south grounds of the White House and, um, and see what the response was. And, and the response was just overwhelming. And do you personally have prior experience in gardening? Beyond some tomato plants, some strawberry plants when I was a kid? Uh, no, not at all. We, we, but we've all, you know, this has been a learning process for everybody. Did you, did you bring some master gardeners in to teach techniques? Um, no, um, but we, we drew on some, ex, some expertise from, from a couple local farmers. Um, learning about sort of the climate in D.C., uh, you know, Chicago is a different place, and learning, you know, and I, I've always worked with farmers, uh, you know, as a chef, and so I'd have a re- very good sense of the seasons and sort of what grew when, but D.C. is different. It's so much warmer. The cycle here and, and, the, and the seasons here, and also soil. Learn a tremendous amount about soil because in the end, you're, you're only as good as your soil, and so learning how to make sure that we're, um, giving back to our soil, making sure it's, it's as fertile as possible has been a, a great lesson. What can Americans learn from the existence of this beautiful garden at the people's house? Um, that we have to uh, pay attention to what we're eating, that we need to uh, eat more fruits and vegetables, uh, and that you know that a, a community can be built around a garden. And I think um, well, we, that's what we've seen here at the White House, and that's what we've seen in gardens all over America when we, when we get out and travel, is that you know, gardens can really be an anchor for, for community. Um, Could you explain that? Yeah, you know, um, we've seen particularly in, a, in, 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 in underserved communities and communities where they're dealing with some pretty serious uh, issues, you know, somebody stakes out a plot of land and, and all of a sudden people start investing in, in that plot of land and they start, you know, coming together to take care of the plants and, and a lot can be built from that. And we see, you know, communities really uniting or, and start becoming more conscious about their health and what they're eating and, and, uh, and from that all kinds of amazing things happen. So how much food is produced from this garden? Uh, we produce way more than we can eat. Uh, you know, this food goes to the to the first family. I cook out of this every night. In fact, I'm going to pick some things right now to take back up. Are you dinner. are you at? Are there any security restrictions that would preclude you from telling us what you're planning to serve tonight? Um, yes, that is top secret information. But I will be picking a lot of herbs, which the herb garden is, is looking great, and some lettuce for a salad. And, and do you personally prepare their meals when they're here? Yeah. I mean, there's a whole there's a team of chefs who who, who cook, but I I generally do dinner uh, five nights a week. Um, and the, the, but we also use this for state dinners, uh, for if the president or first lady has luncheons, um, and, and we give about a third of it away to a local uh, kitchen, uh, Miriam's Kitchen, which cooks for, for those in, in, in greatest need. Um, so that's been a great partnership with them. 
Um, so this garden has yielded, you know, many thousands of, of pounds of food. Uh, we're upwards of 3,000 pounds of food now. And, you know, you can just see. It's amazing what one bed can produce. One small plot of soil can just produce just an incredible amount of food. So to what extent are the White House menus planned around the yield of these crops from the vegetable garden? Uh, very much so. Uh, it's one of the greatest joys of cooking here, uh, just sort of in the strictest of chef terms, uh, because I get to come down here and just see what looks best and then say, okay, you know what, I'm going to cook broccoli tonight because that broccoli is actually looking great, and, and then I go from there. And that's just like, that is, that is the best way to cook. So I'll be picking things, and it'll be on the plate within, like, within the hour. Now, you've come with your metal bowl yep. and your knife. Yep. Some chive flowers, some thyme, and then some uh, some rosemary. You can smell that thyme. Yeah, you can smell this rosemary too. It's amazing. Beautiful. White House Assistant Chef Sam Cass at the First Lady's Vegetable Garden on the South Lawn. He also serves as Senior Policy Advisor for Healthy Food Initiatives. Advocates of good nutrition point to a major problem in urban America, certain neighborhoods characterized as food deserts. These are economically challenged communities with few and sometimes no grocery stores. Access to fresh fruits and vegetables is severely limited. Convenient options may be restricted to fast food and junk food. This is the story of an inner-city neighborhood in West Las Vegas a food desert located in an actual desert, where local activists have made a tangible and tasty difference. We are sitting on a five-acre lot, really smack dab in the middle of Las Vegas because we're about five miles from downtown, which is pretty much in the center. We can certainly hear the roar of traffic in the background. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we're right next to a freeway as well. This is Rosalind Brooks at Tonopah Community Garden, a nonprofit center she founded in 2010. When we first acquired the lot, it was just all desert and had trash and all that on it. And right now we have about 38 raised beds. We have 11 farming rows that are about 175 feet long by 4 feet wide. We have chickens, and we have a walking path where we could actually walk eight times around and get a mile in before you go home. And we we did have goats as of Saturday, but we don't have goats anymore. The disappearance of the goats was a mystery the day I visited. Somebody wondered if they'd been stolen. But very much intact was the organic produce and flowers growing in the beds and a group of volunteers who help cultivate the crops and facilitate the work of other helpers. We live, uh, you know, we really try to live within a budget now that I've quit my job and decided to be a full-time volunteer. What were you doing, Ross? I was a school teacher. I taught kindergarten and first with Clark County School District for seven years. So that provides a natural connection with the kids who get involved? It really does, yeah. Now I'm just teaching on a grander scale. So why are people drawn to participate, the hundreds who've come? Mm, curiosity is definitely a big one because nobody thinks you can grow anything in Las Vegas. And so they just have to see for themselves. 
and the desire to, to help and serve. You know, so many of them have heard about the challenges that we've had and, and their hearts just, you know, are touched by that. And then they come in and, and they donate their time for that. Rosalind Brooks had become concerned about local public health, especially the obesity epidemic. She looked at cities like Denver, where more than 100 community gardens now bring people together and provide nourishing food, but there was none in Vegas. She began planning a garden project. It would rely on donations, and a big one came from a former city council member who offered the lot which he owned but was not using at the time. It looks out on a part of the Sierra Nevada mountain range. When word about the new project circulated, hundreds of volunteers slowly appeared. A few sat with me one morning around a picnic table at Tonopah Garden. I love gardening, so this was um, actually a blessing to find this, you know. It's like I had something to do with my spare time and, you know, coming in to help. It's, yeah, there's just something about putting your hands in the soil, you know. I build casinos. I build all the places that the tourists come. But we haven't had work for almost three years now. I see. So uh, work was slow, and I was uh, putting a big dent in my couch. And just, uh, I came down one day. Well, it was summer when I came out, and they had no shade. And there was a big pile of wood back there. As a carpenter, that's like, hey, I'm in heaven. <laughs> so I started building. We have shade. We got sheds. We got places to sit, places to, to meet. Uh, so just uh, living on unemployment and having somewhere to go and paying it forward is uh, part, of, part of living now for pa- me. Paying it forward means? That means I'm going to do something for somebody else and they will probably ever never meet me. Tonopah Community Garden founder, Rosalind Brooks. You know, I was born and raised here, and I wasn't able to grow up in an environment where I could actually learn about, you know, chickens and goats and pet them and eat fresh eggs and pick something from the ground at 10 o'clock and eat it at 1 o'clock, you know. And so I think that so many parents want their kids exposed to this. So gardening is new for you? Yes, it's new for me. Delving into this, I, I, I have to say that even though I was donated this land, it was definitely the, the pull from God to just leading me out of the classroom and doing something different. This is not anything that I ever would have chosen. Why? Because I'm a city girl and I don't know anything about farming. <laughs> Didn't know it was possible to even do. So I would have never sought this out because I just didn't know that, that it was possible. And, you know, I go to the grocery store like everyone else and was content to continue doing that. You mean produce doesn't originate at the grocery store? I <laughs> know. <laughs> no, it does not, you know. So, so feeling just this, you know, pull and pull and tug that, that I was meant to do something else led me here. And then what kept me here and what allowed me to get through this was just so much trial and error because not growing before and not knowing anything about it, it was just planted, it doesn't grow. Figure out why. We're infested with worms and beetles and this and that. Figure out, you know, how to get rid of that organically and all that. And it just was a whole year of just ramming my head in the wall, you know, just quitting every other day and, you know, 
the first eight months, I'm sure I quit like twice a week. So it was really, 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 really challenging. So what do members of the community experience and learn when they participate in this garden? One of the things people are learning is that they can actually do it. And it is just so incredible when you have someone that was like me initially and they come in and they have no idea how to plant and they buy a plot and they plant some seeds and they're actually eating from it in three months. It is just incredible. One of the best things about a community garden, which is why I'm really, really excited to plant a hundred more in the city of Las Vegas, is that once you cross the threshold of the garden, the playing field is level. Means what? doesn't matter what your religious status is. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. It doesn't matter if you have a degree or you don't. Once you cross the threshold of a community garden, everyone's mission is the same. And if you're here and someone else is here and you're having trouble, you're gonna reach out to them and say, you know, how do I do this, how do I do that? And you have no idea who they are, who they believe in, if they believe in anything, it does not matter. So have some friendships blossomed here along with the seeds? They have, they really, really have. There's a few people that now meet outside of the garden and kids arranging play dates outside of the garden. And so it's such a wonderful, um, a wonderful place You've mentioned spirituality a couple of times. Is there for you a spirituality of being in the garden? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's so incredible because even those people who don't have a connection spiritually, they feel something when they're here. And so I've had so many people comment, like, I don't know what it is, but I just don't want to leave. And it is just something about being in nature. You know, nature just does that. Rosalind Brooks, founder of the Tonopah Community Garden in West Las Vegas, Nevada. You're listening to The Diet Climate Connection, a documentary project from humankind. I'm David Freudberg. At our website, you can obtain a free download of this program and other diet climate segments as they become available. You can also access our free printable booklet, The Climate-Friendly Food Guide, to help you make Earth-smart practical choices. For all this, please visit humanmedia.org. When we first saw this place, we were really excited. In San Jose, California, Mark Anthony Medeiros, wearing his trademark straw hat, chatted with me on the grounds of Vigilution, a nonprofit urban farm he helped to found in 2008. The project started a year earlier in people's backyards when he and other students at San Jose State began gardening vegetables. As interest mounted, they looked for additional space and happened upon a city-owned park. It was quite strange to see these six acres um, just sitting under this big flyover freeway, um, unused. And as college students wanting to start like a community garden project, um, we were just like, wow, this is amazing. But obviously the freeway... The freeway defines the space, it's our backdrop. It's a bit annoying with the noise, we just learn to shout, you know, really loud. Today, thousands of volunteers help in production of fresh vegetables and fruits for residents of San Jose and Santa Clara County. 
The region is blessed with a favorable climate and rich soil. Produce is provided free to volunteers with a considerable surplus sold to the public and donated to soup kitchens. The farm is dedicated to principles of sustainable agriculture, which excludes synthetic fertilizers or chemicals. Amy Frisch is co-founder of Vegilution. Many neighborhoods, including the ones around here, you'll see um, a lot of fast food restaurants, a lot of corner stores, a lot of places to access junk food, and very few places to access fresh, healthy vegetables. So that's what we're bringing to, um, to San Jose, is we're bringing a source of easily available and affordable vegetables that are healthy and fresh and grown sustainably. We're really ready to make a long-term commitment to the park. Mark Medeiros. And um, we want to take this six-acre community farm to a very high level by 2040. You know, we're all really committed to being here. Or sooner. Or sooner, yeah. <laughs> Preferably sooner. Fun but funds permitting. Yeah. So what is your big-picture vision for how a sustainable food system can function in an urban setting. The farm project that we're developing here is a first step, and it is one type of activity uh, amongst all sorts of policy changes and different models of farming that can exist in um, San Jose and other urbanized areas. But as people who are designing a project, we found this place, this uh, city park, and a functional model for this park is like a large community garden, a cooperative farm that the public can access that has educational programs. It's almost like a gym or a um, grocery store or any other facility where people can go regularly each week and get a service. So. Um, we really like that aspect that anybody from San Jose can walk in, do a few hours of work, learn something about gardening, and get some food. One place volunteers at Vegilution can walk into is the hen house. Amy Frisch. It has different varieties. We got the, we got the green ones and the brown ones. Um, we have one. Also, well summers, then they lay a really dark terracotta colored egg, which is really nice. One thing that we've been doing lately is trying to collect stories from our volunteers. And I've been reading through um, what people have been saying, and it struck me that a lot of, there were several people in a row that answered these questions that were asking that said, wow, I didn't realize how much work it was to grow food. And that, that food that I'm buying at the grocery store actually came from somewhere and people grew it. And so I think that, and that's the, that's the thing that people are learning when they're coming out here. They're, they're learning the story behind their food. Amy Frisch, along with Mark Anthony Medeiros, co-founders of Vegilution Community Farm in San Jose, California. The emerging movement of citizen participation in community farms and gardens allows a growing population to reconnect with the way nature yields the food that sustains us. 
The subject was of special interest at Cleveland School in Oakland, California, where students researched how a stalk of asparagus served in the school cafeteria actually reached their plate. Joseph is a fifth grader in the Oakland Unified School District. It was grown in South America. It was shipped to China for packaging, then sent to LA for storage, then finally up um, to OUSD. 18,000 miles that this um, asparagus had traveled to get to our plate um, here, in, um, in here in Cleveland School. By tracing the long and winding road of this asparagus, children become sensitive to the amount of energy expended in long-distance food distribution, a source of greenhouse gas emissions associated with climate change. And that may help them appreciate the colorful, locally grown offerings at the nearly two dozen farmers markets that operate on the grounds of Oakland Public Schools. I visited one at Franklin Elementary, and children's experiences at the market are integrated into classroom teaching. Richard Cuthrell teaches third grade. Not only do you hit all the different curricula educationally, but also socially. The students come out of their classrooms, they see the members of their neighborhood, um, other students, teachers, and other staff at the school all talking about produce and getting along and the produce is displayed in a very beautiful way. And it truly is. And, um, and so it just becomes kind of this almost like a salon and, um, and it's, it's just a very happy place. It's a very fun place. Parents in Oakland have generally supported initiatives to introduce in local schools healthier and more sustainable food options. Allison Rodman is a member of the Oakland School Food Alliance. Some schools have a higher level of diabetes and other issues like that. And the parents know that now. And they're, they don't want their children to have diabetes and they, or any of the chronic uh, uh, diseases that come with uh, bad food. And so as, we, as the parents get educated, they're more likely to want to help their children eat better. One cafeteria policy adopted by Oakland, as at Baltimore Public Schools and elsewhere, is the practice of meatless Mondays, advocated by a growing group of people concerned about the large environmental footprint of livestock products. One day per week, children's protein needs are met by lower-fat vegetable sources. In Oakland schools, meatless Mondays were fine with most elementary and middle school kids. But according to Jennifer Labar, director of Nutrition Services, the policy met with some pushback from high school students. There was no meat. That was the resistance because they did not view it as a good lunch or a complete lunch because there was no meat. The high school students knew that there was no chicken or pork or beef on that menu. And were they saying they thought it was nutritionally deficient or just something that they were used to was missing? I, it was more something that they were used to was missing. It, there was not an issue of the nutritional value of the, the, the food. It was just that it wasn't lunch because it didn't have the meat. And I had to go back to my mantra of slow and steady wins the race. So, you know, we're, we're going to, you know, continue it at the lower levels. And then as those students transition into high school, they'll be used to it. And if animated voices are an indication that children are enjoying their school lunch, satisfied customers abound here at Esperanza Korematsu, another Oakland elementary, 
Sylvia Fong selects the fruits and vegetables for the cafeteria salad bar. Or sometimes some of them kids, they, they try to come back to get a second time because they said they like it. Do you have to then become the police officer? <laughs> no, I said, I'm sorry about that. You can eat more tomorrow because we, we still have like a two more or three more groups need to serve. <laughs> but the last group, if we got anything left over, we always give the kids the second time, so let them eat all of the leftover vegetable or fruit. We really view that the meal program is a foundation for which the students will become academically successful. It's going to help them be able to sit in the seat without being squirrely. It adds so much not only to brain development, but just to be calm and ready to learn as well. Jennifer Labar, Director of Nutrition Services for the Oakland, California Unified School District. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Special thanks to Tony Buck, Art Cohen, Lisa Mullins, and Bill Muma. Some musical selections by Gunnar Debosi. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Presented in cooperation with Connie Goldman Productions. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston. Program development provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. And our web address is humanmedia.org. And remember, our climate-friendly food guide booklet can be downloaded free at humanmedia.org. This segment, part four of the Diet Climate Connection, is Humankind Program number 185. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.